Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Bedtime with Dan. Today we're going to be starting a new book uh, on Greek, Greek, on Greek gods, obviously Zeus and whatnot. Um, before we started the book, I just wanted to say a massive thank you to anyone who takes the time to listen to the stories. I've noticed a massive difference in my ability to read out and um, it's really given me a lot more confidence within the podcast itself, which is what I was hoping it was going to do. Um, so hopefully the emails are coming across a bit better and I'm actually enjoying reading, which I always thought was the most boring thing in the world. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to say a massive thanks to anyone that gave it a chance and didn't heckle me with the abuse from my uh, terrible pronunciation of things. Um, but hopefully we can keep going as long as this people want to listen. But let's go on with the with the new book. So the first chapter is called Hope for Mankind. The Population of the Earth. The gods were bored. Declaimed in the ocean time, it's all very well being immortal, but the time does start to weigh heavily after a few dozen millennia. Each of them had his or her own provinces and powers, as Aphrodite was the embodiment of sexual attraction, but long since she had exhausted all of the possibilities of fun among her fellow deities. Boredom isn't stillness, boredom is sameness. The gods' lives flowed on the endless monotone. No century was really any different from any other century, and there was no prospect that the next century would be any different from the last. They needed amusement and entertainment, but it wasn't just that. They found themselves longing even from opposition. Opposition would spark interest, create twists and knots in the smooth, unwinding yarn of the years. They decided to populate the earth. It would be a great experiment. Perhaps this would give their lives meaning. If not, they could always scrap the attempt and start again. Zeus, king of the gods, enjoyed his extended family to get busy, and they fell to their task with relish. Before long, they had moulded all the creatures of the earth out in clay. Once all had their shapes, the gods gave Prometheus the job of equipping each species with its powers. Now, Prometheus was a titan, one of the elder gods who had been overthrown by Zeus and his fellow Olympians. The titans, led by Zeus' father Kronos, was not given up without a struggle, but they had lost the war. Prometheus's brothers, Menetus and Atlas, had been severely punished. Menetus cast down into the dungeons of Tartarus, and Atlas, the largest of the titans, forced to carry on his shoulders the burden of the heaviest of all eternity. But Prometheus had persuaded his mother Themis, the goddess of right and order, to side with Zeus during the war, and so he and his twin brother had escaped punishment and were living in the palaces of the high halls of Olympus, along with their other immortals. Prometheus was smart, his mind endlessly shimmering with ideas and schemes. His brother was quite the opposite. In fact, Ampetheus was average. He could carry out assigned tasks well enough, but lacked creativity and moved dully. He was inclined to make mistakes if left with his own devices. So Zeus gave the job of equipping the animal species to Prometheus, but Emptheus was jealous. You get all the fun jobs, he complained. Let me have one. When Prometheus hesitated, Emptheus said, 
When I've finished, you can inspect my work. You will have the last say. Prometheus agreed on these terms, and Emptheus set to work. To some creatures he gave strength, but not speed. Others, those he left weaker, he made fleet of foot. Small ones were protected by their abilities to take off into the air or burrow inside the earth. Large ones were protected by their sheer size. Some had tusks or claws, while others had thick hides to save them from the tusks and claws. Their outsides were designed in various ways to shield them from the extremes of heat and cold to which they would be exposed. Their insides were designed to cope with all the various foodstuffs of the earth, with no species in danger of exhausting its supply. Some preferred roots, others leaves or grass, and yet others the blood and flesh of weaker creatures. But then the weaker creatures gained a boon of deep hiding places and many offspring, while the stronger ones produced fewer. Emptheus was pleased with his work. He had ensured that the perpetuation of all species. His masters would be delighted, but first he had to satisfy his brother. And Prometheus wasn't pleasantly surprised. His brother had indeed done a good job. He inspected all the animal prototypes, hearing Emptheus's explanations and nodding to in agreement. But there, right at the end, there was a problem. Lost in the shadows and dust of Emptheus' workshop, Prometheus found a neglected clay form, naked, with no hooves or claws, no speed or strength, no natural home for refuge, no ability to live well on raw food, no penetrable hide, nothing. This lump of clay had nothing, but it was the same. The day appointed by Zeus for the population of the earth was at hand. What about this one? What are your plans for it? Anyway, what is it? It's a human being, replied Emptheus, close to tears as he realised his foolish mistake, and I have no plans for it. I just forgot it, and now I've used up all the powers we were given. There's nothing left for it. Prometheus thought for a little while. All right, there's nothing to be done now. Zeus wants the earth populated right away with all the species, and we'll just have to let this human fend for itself for a while. Meanwhile, I'll try to think of something... And so, out of the gods' boredom, the earth was populated with all the animal species. The gods were truly delighted with their new toys. Every aspect of life on earth came into existence on that day. Goodness was henceforth defined as whether the brief part danced by a creature on the earth's stage was pleased in the gods' eyes. It amused the gods to remind their creatures in various ways who their masters were, and to test their goodness. Just when everything was going well, they would cause a flood or an earthquake or famine or personal disaster, and they devised more and more complex dances for their toys. Prometheus pondered ceasingly the problem of what to do to ensure the survival of human beings. He felt a strange kingship to these creatures, as though he had made them himself. He felt that they had the potential to resemble himself and his brother, to reach the same heights of brilliance and depths of criminal negligence. But, as things were, their lives were little better than those of the dumb beasts around them. They soon learnt to huddle together in caves, to afford themselves some kind of protection rather than going out to search for food one by one. But still it wouldn't take long for the other creatures of the earth to eliminate the defenceless men. As the first measure, then, Prometheus simply invested them with their own essence. It came like a bolt of lightning, illuminating the dark place. It came like the most beautiful dawn rising up out of the sea. It came like a two-edged sword, 
divining and yet forging the possibilities of a high union. It's called intelligence, and with intelligence came speech. At first, the sounds they made were meaningless and confused, but they slowly developed articulate words. By agreeing among themselves which sounds stood for which objects, they established means by which they could communicate and pass on knowledge about the world. Starting with their own safety, they began to develop rules to govern their behaviour so that they could live together peacefully without preying on one another. But with Promethean intelligence, these first men, for there was yet no women, also gained the ability to fear the future and felt the need to protect themselves against more possibilities. Now, the gods were not aware for the intelligence of these human creatures had been given by the Prometheus. They amused that this was their special ability, just as other creatures were strong or swift or otherwise formidable. But they were quick to see the potential. Men now feared the future, and the gods had the power to make the future better or worse. So they said, let's make it so men have to ask us, to beg us, to plead with us for the better instead of the worse. And let's make it so that they have to ask us for the right way, otherwise we shall just ignore their requests. This idea pleased the gods, it would afford them endless amusement. So the gods invented sacrifice. Men were to pray to them for what they felt they needed, and their prayers were to be wafted up to the heavens by the smoke of sacrifice. The sacrificial victim should be something valuable, a gift freely given to the gods. The richer the sacrifice, the thicker the smoke, and the better the chances that the gods of Olympus would smell the prayer. But none of this was going to happen unless men had fire. Prometheus was not slow to understand the importance of fire to his wards. Fire could make up for his brother's carelessness by giving humans the essential tools to their survival and development. They could cook their food to make it digestible, heat kilns to make pottery, keep warm in the winter, forge metals, fire is the key that opens all of these doors and lays the foundation of human life. Without it, there is no possibility of advancement or civilization. With it, and with Promethean intelligence, who knew whether men might not become as gods themselves? At any rate, fire would be the foundation of the civilised and the communal life, which would protect them from other creatures. Zeus would give men fire, and in return men were to sacrifice to the gods, giving the gods the best bits of the sacrificial victim, and yet, and let what is done here today be final, Zeus proclaimed, his voice echoing through the surrounding hills. Uh, so the gods came down from the places and high halls of Olympus to earth, see that the idea of theirs carried out in the right way. With Prometheus himself acting on as the champion of his people, the negotiations were soon over. Zeus would give men fire, and in return men were to sacrifice to the gods, giving the gods the best bits of the sacrificial victim. And let what is done here be final, Zeus proclaimed, his voice like thunder echoing for the surrounding hills. This is the day of fire. An unblemished cow was found for the first sacrifice. Zeus left it to Prometheus to divine the beast into two halves, a portion for the gods and the lesser portion for men. Every anxious to look after the interests of men whom he loved, Prometheus was a prankster who played a trick on Zeus. 
He wrapped all the fine bits of the meat in the cow's stomach so that it resembled a giant haggis, which should contain only offal, and he covered the cow's skeleton in a layer of gleaming fat and stuck the hide back on to make it look an attractive hole. And Zeus chose the fair-seeming but less nutritious portion. Not that he or the gods needed meat, they wanted only the smoke of a sweeter sacrifice. What was done there the day was final, which as declared irrevocably by Zeus. Forever afterwards, the gods had to be sacrificed, which received the lesser portion of every blood sacrifice, with the smoke bearing it up to the palaces and the high halls of Olympus, along with the prayers and petitions of mortal men. For those, it was done on the day of fire. But Zeus was furious when he discovered the trick and decided to wipe mankind off the face of the earth. He would not do this with a flood or famine or overwhelming disaster. He wanted them to suffer, and he wanted Prometheus to see them suffer. He simply withdrew his offer of fire. Without fire and without the arts and crafts the fire would supply, humankind would die out. It would take time as the other creatures preyed on them, but that would only make it more interesting and more fitting punishment. Prometheus chose a desperate expedient. He knew the consequences, knew that he was destined to be the wounded healer. He accompanied the rest of the gods back to Olympus and immediately strolled into the workshop of Hephaestus, the blacksmith god. There was always fire to be found there, concealing and preserving the precious flower of fire in the stalk of a giant fennel plant, he brought it down from heaven to earth. It was still the day of fire. What was done that day was final. Prometheus gave fire, life, and civilization to mankind, and it could not be taken back. Men raised high the burning brands and danced all night in celebration. They were safe now. They would survive, and even in ages to come, make themselves a dominant species on the broad face of earth. But wrath of Zeus fell fiercely on Prometheus. Hephaestus forged adamantanium chains, and Prometheus bound was dragged from Olympus down to earth to Caucasian mountains. There he was splayed out naked and pinned to the rock by his wrists and ankles with the adamantium chains which for security were driven lengthwise through the centre of the mighty pillar and deep into the bedrock of the mountain. He had no chance of escape, but that was not the worst of it. Every day a gigantic eagle came and tore open his stomach and gorged out his liver. Every night the wound healed again to feed the monstrous bird the next day. There was no end of this torment. Prometheus was immortal. Death could not limit his pain and he was sustained only by the joyful thought of how much grief he had caused the gods. Even the gods' anger abates in time. After 30,000 years had gone by, Zeus reprived the tormented trickster, sending his favourite son Hercules to kill the eagle. True, Prometheus was still unable to move, but half of his agony was over. In gratitude, he gave Hercules information that would help him complete one of his labours, as we shall see. Still, the remorseful years rolled by, and time came when Zeus concealed his desire for the sea goddess Thestus. This was the moment Prometheus had been waiting for, for he knew a secret. 
that Thestius was destined to bear a son who would be greater than his father. If Zeus was the father, then the son of Thestus would overthrow him, just as Zeus had overthrown his father Cronus. He bargained the information for his release, which Zeus allowed him, providing that he never again made trouble. He was to wear a garland forever, encircling his head in remembrance of the chains that had bound him. Prometheus was continued to sink in obscurity, along with his intelligence. His human wards had inherited the power to tease and trouble the gods. His work was done. For the thief of fire, Zeus punished Prometheus, but Memnon suffered his wrath as well. Of course, he couldn't allow such a direct threat to his authority to pass as it had unnoticed. But the time hasn't come yet for that tale. Let's turn now to the immortal gods. Let's leave humankind for a while with some hope. So that's the first introduction to the Greek gods. Obviously, Zeus isn't painted in a very good picture, but he's still one of my favourites, as is um, Poseidon, but we'll get to him too. I uh, hope you enjoyed that beginning bit. Once again, names are not very my strong suit. I did struggle with them a little bit, but they're a bit easier than Norse, Norse ones. Um, hope you had a good Wednesday. Enjoy the rest of your week, and I'll catch you on Friday for our regular show. See you later, guys.